Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Yeah. Welcome to the Bitcoin Podcast. We in Outshine. Bitcoins, we got them. Acquire, never sell. But catch us rolling deep like Adele. Bitcoin, blockchains, cryptocurrencies. Three guys faded talking Bitcoin, no fee. That's the free Bitcoin podcast, insane. And adoption is still the only thing, thing, thing that matters, man. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Bitcoin podcast. Episode number 158. I'm your first host, Cello. And I'm host number two, B. Bringing up the rear, Corey. On the ticket today, boys. First thing on the ticket, get that sponsorship knocked out. All right. 158 is brought to you by Pally. Uh, You might remember them. Uh, They were on the show. And you know if they're on our show... And they're a sponsor. They're legit. So basically what Pally is, is they're a decentralized social travel ecosystem. I'm going to break down that ecosystem. First part, Pally Social. That's the mobile app. Uh, It's been live since about April. Then you got Pally Adventures. And that's a community marketplace where visitors can immerse themselves in new cities through unique experiences curated by local hosts. Uh, It's all about community. And we're all about community. So. It's a good puzzle piece. It fits. Uh, we recently ran a press release where Pally is operating a no-tolerance policy for discriminatory, abusive, malicious, or violent behavior. So you can feel safe when you use it. Uh, the August pre-sale sold out in 11 minutes, and the team is very busy preparing for the upcoming crowd sale that's happening on the 15th of this month. Uh, for more information, hit up pally.co, and uh, hope to see you there. I got a question for you all. So see if you can do this. So say you're in pick pick some place, some some exotic place. Ibiza. Prague, Prague, Ibiza. I like it. Ibiza. All right. Ibiza. Say you're you just dropped into Ibiza and you're like, you just say you're staying for two nights and you're like, man, I don't want to hit all that tourist stuff. What? And you you open up Pally and start going through things. What do you find you go do? Like what's like what's the local guy? that sells you on the local experience that you want to go do? What does he do? Shuffleboard in a bar. You're boring. Cello? It's not boring. Uh, the best thing that you want to do is find the cuisine that is appropriate for that area that you're in. Oh, get out of here, Anthony Bordeaux. When, uh, you know the term Bordeaux? when in Rome? You have to apply that. I could shuffleboard anywhere. Boring, though. You just said you're going to shuffleboard, and I'm boring. <laughs> I'm going to find some place I could do the wobble, and I'm going to turn that whole country into one that does the wobble. There, I'm going to bring that from America. If you found America a place that them. does the wobble, then that you that that already exists. Not over there. Why do they have a place that does the wobble if it doesn't exist over there? 
I'm going to find a place where they play music, and then I'm going to play the wobble there and show them how to do it. Next time I ask that question, I expect a better answer from you. Man, I like outdoorsy shit. Hiking is, I'd be like, yo, take me to a good hiking trail. Don't murder me. If you murder me, it would suck. That's that's a that's a better answer. I like to hike. I like get show me a mountain that looks like an easy climb to the top. I'm not climbing. I'm not getting any rope. I'm talking walking like a big ass hill. I want to go to it and I want to take a selfie off the side of it and say, "Hey, look, there's the city down there. I'm up here." So, are you doing it just for the selfies so you can show off to your friends how much of a better life you have than them? I don't put anything on Instagram. If you followed me on Instagram, you'd probably unfollow me from how boring I am. But the selfies are for me. Hence the name selfie. It's to remind me where I was. You ever look at them? I look at my own selfies. Did you know that in Ibiza, they call hiking walking holidays? See, that's what I'm talking about. I go on my Pally app and say, hey, who's talking about a walking holiday? Go on one. I like to walk. It's so, so let's walk over to a different conversation. Wait, I'm not done yet. <laughs> if you're in a foreign land and you see a dark alley, don't be scared. Open up, Pally. Is that the exact same one from last time? No, that's insinuating yeah, if there's a dark I alley, you open up Pally and then you explore the alley. So that is not what Pally does. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying if you're in a foreign land, you've gone on a drinking rally, you see a dark alley, you open up Pally. And then what? You, you get in the galley. Yeah. And, then and you end of up course, the next day, really look at smelly. the Pally associate named Mally. I'm losing. I'm running out of words. Anyways, so we're going to talk about Bitcoin stuff. That was a long inadvertent ad. You're welcome, Pally. Um, <laughs> shit. Uh, yeah. so if you guys have been paying attention to the news lately, a lot of people are starting to look like Nostradamus because Goldman Sachs is like, hey guys, um, we just want to let the world know that we're about to start flirting with Bitcoin. Like, we're talking, as the kids say. I've sent Bitcoin a message, uh, through Kick. It sent me a message back. I sent it a GIF. It sent me a GIF back. They're in the talking phase right now. Did, 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 they, did like Bitcoin send like a or did Goldman Sachs send like a hey with two Ys? You, that it's that extra Y that <laughs> you know is their DTF. That's how you know it's that's how you know what's going down when you see the extra Y. You're like, oh shit, she's she's spelling words wrong. Damn. Hey. Hey, I'll spell some words wrong too. Shit. Uh, um, so what did they, what did they actually say? Bitcoin? What did they actually say? Um, I don't know what the actual text was, but the paraphrase is: "We're gonna give Bitcoin a shot." That's pretty much it. We're gonna they're give gonna Bitcoin flirt. a shot, or they're yeah, like- they're gonna flirt with trading with Bitcoin. So they're gonna see if it's fee. So the so the, the better paraphrase would be: They want to see if it's feasible trade bitcoin now a lot of the articles that i read also added this caveat that goldman sachs is down 20 percent on the year this year and they're kind of like uh might as well swing for the fences because it's going to be a tough year which still makes sense right but at the end of the day 
we uh, now have some evidence that floating out there that Goldman Sachs is willing to trade Bitcoin if it's feasible. I don't know. What do you think, Joe? What do you think? Like, is that like the institutional money that the Bitcoin community has been screaming and raving about for years that was inevitably going to enter the space? Yeah, but I don't want them to enter the space because these these people, like the CEO of Goldman Sachs and and Jamie Dimon, they believe that central banks such as the Federal Reserve will move to shut down these digital currencies before they go mainstream enough to rival government backed notes. So I don't think they have the best intentions, and they all think that Bitcoin is still highly speculative. So there's no faith there. They're just they're just conforming to the consensus of general interest. It's money. Like, why are we surprised that these people like money? Or like they're interested in looking more into this thing that's also money. It's, I don't know. I feel like that's like, well, no shit, guys. Well, I mean, yeah, of course we say no shit now, but we've been, we've been preaching this gospel to the choir. Well, it was too small. Three years it's just no. too small. The price wasn't where it needed to be. There wasn't enough people. wasn't enough infrastructure. Now, like, they're, they're in the ICO market basically made so many people stupid rich in the early days that they're like, mm-hmm. what, have, what, have we, what have we been ignoring this whole time? And they just blanket yeah. call it Bitcoin because that's ketchup, right? It's every... Yeah. I think, I think that he, I think that he believes that Bitcoin's future is, is more of a payment method rather than a store of value, kind of like gold. So, I mean, cryptocurrencies are infringing on traditional banking activities, and some startup companies that, in the past, based on patterns, they might have hired banks to take them public by bypassing Wall Street by selling digital tokens rather than shares to the public. So, like I said, I don't I just don't think that they're the right intentions are there. But I don't know, the the CEO who uh looks like that guy from uh what was that? What's the guy who who's the guy that played Thing in Final Fan Final uh, 4, Fantastic 4? I have no idea. Oh, Chickless. Yeah, Chickless. Well, that ball guy, Goldman Sachs CEO. This is right here that he said, like, um, folks were skeptical, skept, skeptical, <laughs> skeptical when paper money displaced gold. So he's he's a uh, he's flirting with the ideas. Where'd you know, read man. that? I just went on to the place that I uh, damned six weeks ago. R slash Bitcoin. And it's right there at the top. Oh, OK. It's on Twitter. Hold up. Actually, if I clicked this link, I could say on, on, that on I said Bitcoin. it on. What did you say? What you say? Corey? I made a bunch of comments on a thread today on Oshlash Bitcoin. What'd you say? I was talking about um, the same stuff I was talking about in the Slack. A guy wrote some open form letter to Eric Voorhees about um, his his lack of addressing the scale of UTXOs when he's arguing about the blockchain size. Or sorry, the block size of Bitcoin. That's something that most people don't understand. Like the subtleties of scaling is not just about 
block size. There's a lot of other things that play into it. Is there like a neat infographic where we could just like see the subtleties? Well, just think about it. I think just think about it in the most basic terms of what Bitcoin does. What do you like? What are you keeping track of? You're keeping track of a number when attached to yeah. a number attached to a, a person who owns that number. So some yeah. address owns some amount of Bitcoin. Not so, even a person, just a number. Yeah. So if you just take all of that together. And you take like what it, if you just stop time right now and say, who owns what? That's what you're keeping track of. That's called the state. And that is the UTXO set. And the only way to change that, the only way to, get, like, to change the total amount of who owns what, the state of Bitcoin, is to send a transaction, which consumes some of those UTXOs, unspent transaction outputs, and creates more. And how that scales, how that gets bigger or smaller plays a very large role in a lot of different subtleties in how well Bitcoin works, including the fees associated with sending a transaction and the burden of that wallets have to have with trying to guess what the proper fee should be and how much work they have to do to do that when they try and keep track of everyone's kind of how much money they have associated with a certain address. I don't really talks about that very much, but like, you don't try and incentivize transactions to not make more a larger state than a smaller state after they send the transaction, then this set grows too fast and becomes burdensome in a lot of different ways. So I wrote some stuff on some subreddit talking about that. So one does not simply create a wallet that can guess a good fee. It's actually really tough. That's real tough. A good wallet, I think the main, the worst part in the software around the whole ecosystem is a, or is good wallet software. Like, really, really good wallet software. And Is that why Muse killing the game? I don't know. Who? Oh. My Ethereum wallet. Oh. My Ether wallet. Well, they're not really like wallet software. I mean, I guess they kind of are. Yeah, they're wallet software. They're just client-side wallet software. They've done... What they did was... Which no one else did nearly as well. Was they enabled people in a really easy way to participate in ICOs in a very safe way. Which means that they didn't hold any, any funds. So it became very easy to like safely store amount of ethereum and any token you wanted to on ethereum mm -hmm. and then they made a lot of kind of catch-alls and easy ways to then participate in all of the things that were built on ethereum like the ethereum name system and all of the token erc20 token sales and changing you know your client they made it very customizable so depending on what level of user you were you either screwed up and they caught it in a lot of in a lot of ways or you could configure it exactly the way you wanted to and see all of the information so i think that's that's where they got but they, i don't know it's like if you try and do multiple asset wallets where like your wallet holds more than one currency especially if you go across blockchains then finding the appropriate fee for each blockchain is a very difficult thing to do 
especially in the Bitcoin ecosystem, where you have where you kind of fight to get your transaction into a block because you know previously as the blocks were full, you had to assume that other people were trying to get in, so you had to outbid them, which leads to a mentality of everyone trying to outbid each other, even if they don't need to, which up the fee price in some ways. There's a lot of like subtleties that go on with what fee you pay in in Bitcoin. Mm. And you just and the end user doesn't see any of that. They just say like, "Wow, it's expensive nowadays. Bitcoin sucks," or something like that. Yeah, you can see. I looked at the all-time um, transaction volume chart today, and you can literally see like when the fees went high, how many transactions went down. Ooh, it was a lot. There's got to be a way to at least say, "Hey." Why don't you? T- why don't we take the average of the last n number of fees and say that that is this, which means that you have a probability of getting in a block if you pay that. Well, you're, you're, that if you're not taking into account the, the UTXO set. So, say for instance, you have three addresses that your wallet controls, but uh-huh. you've used those addresses many, many times. That many prob- times. That probably means that you have like a ton, a, a, just a shitload of UTXOs scattered amongst the entire blockchain associated with those addresses with various different different amounts. And so when you say you want to send you want to send Bitcoin to somebody, your wallet has to try and optimize which UTXOs to use to minimize the number of UTXOs but also get above the threshold of Bitcoin you need to send. And which and so in or- because of that, you will probably end up with more, you'll probably end up just using one UTXO and then breaking it into two, which more often than not leaves the state larger than it was. And your wallet has to work even harder to try and track all this stuff. That's because it, it's it, one address does not have all of your Bitcoin in it. All of your Bitcoin is spread across multiple UTXOs in little bite-sized pieces across the entire blockchain from every transaction you've ever done that your wallet has to keep track of and then try and put together in a way that minimizes the size of your transaction so your fee is low. Because with every input you, you have for a transaction, you drastically increase the size of that transaction, which means it's going to be more expensive. I feel like the BitTorrent guy is gonna gonna help the community in Ooh. some way. If I had to put my Nostradamus hat on, Ooh. listen to what you just said. The BitTorrent guy. Yeah, the BitTorrent guy. Guy like made BitTorrent. He's Why? all on Twitter. He's a big Bitcoin guy. Why is he gonna be a big deal? Because I feel like that what you just described is something like how BitTorrent solved like torrent seeding and. No, uploading and downloading. There's already things in the pipeline that are going to make this way better. So once SegWit got put through, which makes it better, significantly better, once people move their Bitcoin to a SegWit-enabled address, you can have things like Snore signatures, which will aggregate all of the signature blocks of all the inputs into a single signature. So that decreases the size of of, of the transaction drastically especially as you increase the number of inputs. 
Oh, that's the article that I read that you posted today from Andreas. Uh, Andreas know. talked about some things like that. Yeah, Snore signatures are one of the one of the one of the software improvements that we can start to implement now that SegWit has been enabled. That's the type of stuff that I was meaning. Is like the, the scale, SegWit had some scaling features, but it enabled all, like the real scaling features to actually be implemented later on. And do you no ever really see us moving past? Like, do you think it's going to be another rift in the community here in November when we have that hard fork or supposed hard fork or whatever the shit's going down? We're supposed to be talking about that. That's yeah, right. I don't know. <laughs> we might I, as well talk I, I about that like now. It's, it's not going to be nearly as big a deal because people saw how not that big of a deal Bitcoin Cash was, despite everyone saying everything's going to go to hell and the sky's falling. There'll be some contention. There'll probably be another blockchain that won't be as big. But... In the end of the day, I think I personally think that most people are going to stay on what is currently called Bitcoin, and that will be where the majority of the development is, despite there being another thing called Bitcoin 2x that has a larger block size. Suppose you're a savvy, savvy individual. Would it be worthwhile to take all of your assets, put it into Bitcoin or a private key you have the keys to? Get that split money and then rediversify. It's not an it's not an awful strategy, but it could bite you in the ass if something goes wrong. I I basically got rid of most of my Bitcoin for the previous fork because I didn't want to hold. I didn't know, I didn't feel comfortable knowing what was going to happen. Although I'd probably be better off if I did that strategy, which you just mentioned. I feel the same way. Yeah, I, I, I'm just I'm just going to avoid it altogether. It's not a bet I'm willing to make. I feel like the other assets will either maintain their value or perform better over this period. Yeah, if you did listen to my strategy and it works, I want you to tweet uh, tweet me hashtag thanks for all the monies D, and I'll ha- I'll tweet back to you and say I would like a percentage of that, please. Yup. <laughs> yup. <laughs> so, are we, okay. Are we, we coming we back after prom- the interview? We're not. Unless you guys want to. I had to answer that for myself, but for everyone at the same time. You got something to say, Cello? Um, yeah, we're, uh, by the time this episode's out, you can go to futuretechpodcast.com and all three of us are, uh, are interviewed over there. Mostly Cello and Corey, though, because for whatever reason, my Wi-Fi decided to act like a baby back bitch, and I couldn't. It wasn't listening to me very well. So, yep. or the, my sound quality was poor. That was the first time we've actually been interviewed by somebody else. And D's and D's microphone. Well, we actually had to call in on our on our cell phones. And I think D, that's what it was. Honestly. For some reason, was in the middle of nowhere, and his microphone was terrible. I was at the same place I had been for like the previous weeks. I don't understand why it went. I think it was that conference call BS, but whatever. Ours worked fine. Thank you for the opportunity. What did you say? That ours worked fine. Yeah, that's true. But sometimes the internet's a fickle mistress. Internet? So. You called on a, on a phone, dude. No, I called on Skype. Why did you do that? A, because voice over internet protocol, man. Why don't you just use your phone? 
because I w- didn't want to. I was already on Skype and I was doing stuff on my computer. I was like, oh, no, I'm not going to get off my computer. Might as well just be on Bail. Skype. Hindsight's twenty twenty, and you're a Monday <laughs> morning quarterback for what you just did. So, um, I forgot where I was going. Yeah, check us really out on that did. podcast. It was fun. Yeah. Oh, yep. I know exactly where I was going. We're gonna give you guys fork advice. Put your Bitcoin into a wallet where you own the private key. And that's the advice we're giving you. When's our when's our uh, Ledger Blues coming in? In the month, maybe. Be any day now. Oh, I don't know, I but hope I do I know. Show up with a box on my front door one day. When we get them, when I sign on to my uh, Mew wallet with it, I'm gonna play that song when uh, Tony Stark put on uh, his first Mach Three suit in the first Iron Man movie. Because it's gonna make it's gonna feel like a moment for me. You know they're all getting shipped to me, right? Yeah, yeah. I realize that is a hurdle I'm in gonna, that process that I want to have. Them, I'm gonna take. I'm gonna unbox all of them and use them can once. You, can you do an unboxing and use those voices? Like, hey guys, today we're here and we're going to do an unboxing of the Ledger Blue and uh, nice packaging. They all use the same voice. It doesn't matter what they're unboxing. We should do an on ramping though of like connecting it and like getting set up with ERC twenty tokens. That'd be a cool episode. Video thing. Video for that. Uh, I'll I'll paint them a video picture with my voice. We don't have the skill sets to do video. We don't know how to do that. I'm sure we could figure it out. We're not. We're not done. I'm sure we could. I mean, if Ken can do it, Ken, Ken does can. It well. Ken does it very well. Cool. Um, are we running out of things to talk about? Should we just uh, introduce the guest? Yep. Yep. Uh, this week is uh, this midweek episode is Block Mason. They are the cornerstone of the decentralized. Web. We got two dudes on: Jared Bowie, Timothy Galbach. Um, I do. I do want to mention. I gave them a pretty good intro, but if you're not on the whitelist, you're gonna have to wait until the eighth of October to buy in to this pretty cool little uh, product they got. Many people are sending ether to the Block Mason sales contract, and I just found out that more than half of it is being rejected. And this is because you must be on the whitelist to buy. And they're preparing for the next phase of the sale, which would be a short two-day period where whitelisted customers can purchase an unlimited amount of tokens. And this is going to be followed uh, in opening of the sale to the public. Public sale starts on the 8th. So I just wanted to give a little disclaimer to our, our listeners. And uh, these, these guys are both the co-founders. And... Um, not not to sway people or give investment advice, but we're probably gonna throw some coin in it, perhaps. So listen to the interview and form your own conclusions. And take it away, D. Have you guys ever thought that they should do a parody song? Remember that song called Throw Them D Throw Some D's on that bitch? Yep. Have you ever thought 
whenever you're buying coin in an ICO or just on the second mark, he say throw some coin on that bitch every so single like, day. See, I knew I wasn't the only one. No, when I, I say it all whenever the time. I, I said it just yeah. the other day. Like throw some coin on that bitch. That's what I. That's what I think. Oh. Whatever. Anyways, uh. Just waiting for the next podcast called Throw Some Coin on That Bitch, and then we add it to our network. Throw <laughs> <laughs> some coin on that bitch. Uh, anyways, um, here it is. All right, so today on the podcast, we have uh, Jared Bowie, co-founder of Block Mason, and uh, Tim, is it Gail Bach? Yeah, wow. All right. Yes, it oh. is. And uh, they're here to talk about the newest, the most exciting product development yet the debt protocol and then also uh when anthony from jacks kind of joins as an advisor you know it's super legit so guys welcome and um uh how about just a little background on yourselves and and kind of your journey that brought you to uh block mason yeah jared you want to start with that sure um let's see i mean i kind of grew up on a computer taught myself to program in high school um then I kind of quit everything and studied philosophy in university. Following that, I traveled a bunch and gradually just sort of got back into programming. Uh, I, I ran an, a digital marketing agency and I first started kind of getting into Bitcoin, I think around 2012, 2013. Uh, bought some Bitcoin. And then just kind of followed the the first like new coin launches at that time and started doing some mining of altcoins. And then just sort of, I don't know, I kind of just stumbled upon Ethereum, started programming in it and was amazed at the possibilities. Um, so I'd worked with Tim before and then kind of got him into the programming as aspects of Ethereum and that's kind of how this project all started. Yeah, I was, yeah, so my background is like roughly similar. Like, you know, I was programming since I was a kid through high school, you know, majored in CS in college. And then after also took like kind of a long break just to, I was just traveling and studying languages for a few years. Um, I actually met Jared for the first time in Korea in 2008. We were both there for different reasons. Um, kind of hanging out and we just stayed friends since then worked together seriously starting in um, late 2014 with a lot of like I was doing a lot of like software contracting for his marketing firm um, and then yeah as he said like I had also been in the space for a similar amount of time although he was way more into it in terms of following coins because after like when I first found Bitcoin I was like super jazzed about the possibilities for you know you know I think everybody in late 2013 thought it was like going to become like the thing used for payments and when regulatory stuff kind of got in the way of that it just sort of killed the buzz a bit and I didn't really get back into it until Jared got me programming with Solidity like late last year early this year and I have at the time I was doing a lot of coding and just you know just completely different stuff and uh, that completely changed how I saw the blockchain in general. And I think led pretty like very immediately. I just dropped most other projects I had, you know, basically moved out of Austin at that point. And um, yeah, started working with him on this and just figuring out like how we would take advantage of the capabilities. I'm going to jump directly into some weeds because what the conversation you just started had like brought up, like kind of piqued my interest. I, I come from a 
like my coding background is in Fortran and you mentioned you're in really into functional programming before we even started this podcast and growing up around computers, I was curious if were you, were you comfortable or strong with JavaScript before getting into solidity? Yeah. So, I mean, for me, JavaScript is I'm trying to think, I don't want to be like a, I don't want to be like a dick, but uh, I, know, I, 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 was doing I have a, a follow up with this. I'm just, I'm just curious. If you okay. Want to yeah. So I was, I was, I was very, I was very strong in JavaScript and I was actually, before I got into Solidity, one of the main, I mean, if you're probably familiar with some of the languages that compile down to JavaScript mm-hmm. and I was actually really involved um, in like the development community with PureScript, which is basically Haskell okay. compiling to JavaScript. Yeah. And literally right before this project started, I was the annoying guy in their slacks, like bugging them all the time for these other projects I was writing. Um, you know, basically doing JavaScript, but functional stuff on top of it. So yeah, I was pretty comfortable with it. Okay. I was just curious because the, like the, like the design decisions you make with typical programming in JavaScript is not the same type of way you should be thinking (laughs) about things when you're programming solidity, even though solidity is modeled after JavaScript. So what you end up is with a lot of people who jump onto solidity with, because they're comfortable with JavaScript program, very terrible smart contracts that, don't function well on the EVM. And I was curious about like your experiences or something like that and like what lessons you've learned or catch-alls from starting to program with the mind, like learning the mindset of programming smart contracts, especially with like the, the language that isn't designed for that type of programming, at least in my opinion. Yeah. Jared, you want to go on that? It's a really good question. I mean, yeah, I I kind of approach I, I mean I have experience with JavaScript, but for the most part, my experience has been uh with Closure Script and doing stuff in Closure. So mm-hmm. I kind of take that mindset to programming and things like JavaScript. And I think that helps to some extent. I mean I'm I'm not the core Solidity developer here, Tim is. Um and I think he kind of has a similar approach to doing to doing these kind these languages like JavaScript, like he doesn't come in with the the JavaScript background. He comes in with like more of a functional programming background, and then approaches the languages that way. So I don't think um, his background or my background in JavaScript really had that kind of negative effect that it has on other people. Yeah, I can actually answer this question really clearly, especially when you mention your own background, like in Fortran before that. Mm -hmm. Um, So I definitely take each language as it comes. And the first thing that I'm, there definitely was an adjustment like period to solidity in terms of, obviously you have to think much more in terms of efficiency and just incredibly rigorous engineering, which is one thing that got us into protocols. But I approach each language kind of as its own entity. And one of the first things I'm trying to figure out are kind of where are my biggest choke points in the language? Like, for example, if I can like make something like a constant function in Solidity where I know like I can sort of isolate a lot of stuff there and just deal with it because it's not going to make any updates to the state and like it's treated in that way. That's like one choke point. Um, And then for the same reason, I try to avoid too much inheritance in Solidity because you start to really lose a lot of leverage over what's happening. Um, I also do a lot of stuff in practice. Like um, I want my contracts to be upgradable, but obviously like you can't just wipe out your data. 
So a lot of this, I have this pattern I end up using a lot, specifically solidity oriented and the fact that you have to deploy some portion of your code kind of forever, um, where I end up making these almost like data, like database wrappers where a contract will have a set of data and I just make a whole series of getters and setters for that. Um, and have that as its own thing and try to get it really, really lock, like rock solid. And then I build an upgradable contract on top of that. Um, and again, I can kind of feel like at that point I have a little more leeway to mess things up with the overlying contract, at least, you know, initially while being able to know that at least the underlying date data is going to like be there and be kind of sane. So it was definitely an adjustment period. And a big, a big part of the adjustment was kind of figuring out where I could, kind of isolate certain things and at least be like, you know, all right, this part of the code is safe or like I can get some kind of leverage over it. I think that's like you, you, that's a really good piece of advice for our developer audience that they'd really appreciate. But unfortunately we have a very large, I'd say fortunately <laughs> we have a very large audience. So we may have lost quite a bit of people. So why don't we start talking about let's, let's go, let's go away from that. I mean, the, que- <laughs> the question was pretty, the question was pretty technical and it's kind of funny because most of the stuff we've been talking about, these days is actually a lot more kind of layman oriented and especially like kind of smart layman. And I actually think that a lot of the space is shockingly understandable to people within about 10 to 30 minutes of explanation. Yeah. In my experience. All right. Well, I guess let me, let me reel it in then. Um, uh, so when the sec recently signaled it would monitor ICOs a little bit more closely, what does that mean for you guys? Good, good, bad or ugly. It was, without exaggeration, one of the best things that could have happened to us in multiple ways. And I also think it's like one of the best things that's happened to the Ethereum space. So for us specifically, we do have kind of the built-in advantage that I'm kind of a like somewhat like legal autodidact. Um, my dad's like a pretty strong lawyer with kind of a Harvard Law School government um, administration background. And I've also, I've worked with him on litigation, you know, applied to law school and decided not to go. And so we sort of immediately, as we started, like when I read the SEC opinion for the first time, well, I think I had always assumed that they were, they're full of people who are way too smart and competent to be like, you know, oh, we don't get what's going on with a token and either we're going to, you know, completely ban it or anything goes. No, they're going to look at it and they were going to be, essentially their opinion was, if your thing is a security, we're going to treat it as such, but we're also going to allow a lot of leeway to create tokens that aren't. And so that kind of opened up a lot of opportunities for us. Uh, For one, it gave me an opportunity to get my dad intellectually interested in it, which means that he'll do a lot of things for free. Uh, (laughs) Like like, literally it's like getting, you know, literally probably, you know, thousand dollar an hour work for free because it's intellectually engaging for him. And he wants to be able to hang out with people who are doing cool stuff. So I kind of sicked him on the problem in general, uh, specifically like kind of the history of the Howey test for listeners who don't know, it's the test that like courts are used to determine if something's a security. Uh, Mm -hmm. It has a few parts. He got really into that and brought in some of his buddies who, you know, had just uh, left the SEC. Um, and they all kind of got very excited about analyzing the problem and writing a legal opinion regarding how we could make our product um, a token without being a security. But then the second part, and I think Jared really did a ton on this, I can let him talk about it, is basically he kind of took the lead on marketing 
to see, okay, how can we use this as an opportunity? Everybody's talking about the SEC thing, and we're very confident that what we're doing is not going to be a security, and we want to publicize that. How can we do that? So you can kind of say what you tried to do, Jared. Yeah, I mean, in, in the space, obviously, everyone has been excluding Americans. People are doing KYC. They're, they're being very, very careful about this. Meanwhile, they're saying that they're not a security and that, and that, and that the rules don't apply, yet they're kind of acting with a great degree of fear. So when we came out and started marketing ourselves as as an ICO that is is open to Americans that has this legal opinion that that has gone through all all this whole process, I, like that's just a big deal, and that got us a lot of publicity. Um, yeah, and I would also just add that one massive advantage we did have, and a big reason that a lot of these um, firms won't write such legal opinions, is just very practically malpractice insurance. Um, they're, they're, it's just going to be too expensive for them to do it in terms of what would happen if they screwed up. And, you know, I'm not going to sue my dad for everything he owns <laughs> if my ICO messes up. So that gives him a little more leeway to analytically, like push the boundaries and really get into the problem without having to worry about that breathing down his neck. That is, a. Uh... Did your dad want to do a podcast? I think that could be interesting. Oh, it was, well, actually, uh, there's nothing he likes more than kind of hearing the sound of his voice going, like talking about such things. So he would be very down. He's also um, starting a um, legal meetup in the Boston area, um, specifically around this issue, because that tech scene has a lot of, there's not a huge crypto scene there yet, but there's an incredibly huge startup scene. And a lot of those people kind of have their eyes open for, just legally, practically, how could we transition? And so he's actually kind of very much on the edge of that in that community and really try, yeah, trying to get very into it. So yeah, he would be very down. <laughs> All right. So I'll switch. Let's, let's talk about the credit protocol because this is very far from the origins of, of Bitcoin, which started all this stuff. You know, yeah. Bitcoin is based on like, yeah, F debt. No, we don't like debt. Nobody <laughs> debt the world will be better without it a lot of people have that point of view and especially a lot of people that are into crypto to begin with so so how are you guys going about pitching the idea of a credit <laughs> protocol tell us more about the ins and outs of it yeah so the first thing i love is that you correctly recognize that it's extremely different than what people are doing in the space and it's once you start recording credit that's a fundamentally different operation than any type of payment settlement right um, so I guess I'm trying to think of which way to go at it first. Uh, let me start from like the technical point of view and then I'll go into like that kind of philosophical libertarian one, um, which is from the technical point of view, the cool thing to us about it, um, just in terms of what it means for Ethereum going forward, even without regard to debt and also Bitcoin with side chains is that I remember I was actually listening to you guys podcast from a couple weeks back Yeah, and you were talking about like public and private <laughs> blockchains and I think, Dimitri, you were like really, really close to like articulating a reason that like public blockchains are significantly better and are qualitatively different things than private blockchains. And like mm -hmm. probably the clearest way to say that is that like in a public, in a private chain, you don't have anything adversarial going on, right? You can assume there's not malicious actors internally, right? You like kind of have control over it. But the problem is everyone using that externally doesn't get any guarantees and there's a ton of mental effort, um, checking effort, 
whatever to make sure that what you're saying is honest. So if you have like, you know, some bank running an internal blockchain, you know, I mean, it's kind of a crappy, okay database they're running there. But I don't if I come in and look at it fresh from the outside or I'm another institution that wants to interact with them, I don't get any guarantees about what's going on there because nothing adversarial. I'm kind of the first adversary attacking that contract. Right. That program. Yep. But like if you have a public blockchain, just the fundamental base assumption is that everyone is kind of potentially adversarial and attacking it. And so if you actually have something that's deployed there and is still working in spite of that, what you've just done is offloaded an insane amount of both bureaucratic work and just like mental work on the part of everyone to keep track of it. Basically, you have computers doing something that they should be doing and humans don't have to do it anymore. Um, and so for me, that's like something that you can actually never achieve with a private blockchain. And I mean, of course, if we define private to be, you know, there's multiple competing parties and it's like seven adversarial banks who share a private chain. Sure. That's just the same thing as a public chain in a smaller context. Right. Mm-hmm. But that, so for us, like when we start looking at the credit protocol and Ethereum in general, the first thing we're trying to do is take advantage of the fact that we have this distributed database that has the property that if we set the right rules, we can actually sort of track debts or any information over time and people can be sure about some of its properties. So the simplest example is like if you have two friends who want to have a debt to each other, right? Like Jared, we go out to dinner and I owe Jared $50, you know, for our dinner, right? So there's all these different ways we could keep track of it, but none of them have the same guarantees of a public blockchain. Like we could write it on a Google Doc, which, you know, one of us might even make a typo, even with the best of intentions. And there's no guarantees there. We could use an app that, you know, who knows how long that will even be in business. One of us could write like a program and upload it to AWS and just run it as a web program. But again, we don't have that like adversarial aspect. So no one, we also don't know if we'll just, if we'll keep paying for the server over time. Um, You could use the Venmo approach, which is basically solve the problem of recording and trust by you know, coordinating the actions of dozens of large hundreds of banks just to keep track of like that debt. But when you do, when you actually have a reliable program on the blockchain and you know that for there to be a $50 debt recorded between me and Jared, that means that I put that out there and Jared confirmed it. That's an incredibly valuable piece of information that neither of us can change. And once you start being able to do that, you unlock this like entire realm of economic efficiency because going to your first question, which is, you know, isn't debt bad? Debt is like one of the most fundamental things that people do because all it really represents is like some kind of bet across time or deployment of resources that don't exist yet. Um, I think when, and so until you can do that, you're kind of limited to what people have in the present and you're not able to make productive bets. Like if I say that basically Jared, like I go out to the dinner with Jared and I loan him $50 and we record that, what I'm saying is essentially betting that over time, our friendship will be worth more to us than $50 and that we'll have another meal where like, you know, he can pick up the tab for me. Right. And that's a pretty... The fact that we like can't make that bet under a pure payment system is really inefficient because, I mean, you can talk all you want about how debt is bad and you don't want people in debt. But if I can't make the bet that my friendship is worth more than $50 that we'll probably go out to dinner again, we're missing a large slice of economic life. I think now, 
Yeah, go. I was going to say, like, I, I, one of the like fundamental cornerstones of what a money is is the thing that quantifies debt and the thing that pays back that debt. You see, like, from a philosophical standpoint, creating credit and debt on a blockchain then more legitimizes its money purpose or, like, at least puts it yes. more towards the, like, the thing in which everything is re- referenced to. Yeah, you guys are, like, way more sophisticated than most of the people we talk to because, like, you basically hey. just encapsulate it right <laughs> You guys just, like, encapsulate it right there when it, you know, usually takes a lot of context for people to explain, um, to explain to people. Um, yes. Yeah, absolutely. And like, you can even talk about kind of the bad aspect of debt, which I'm actually not super, you know, pro debt, um, as it's done right now. And the bad aspect of debt is when you have things like maturity mismatches and like a bank is like taking deposits and like loaning them out or making them instantly available for withdrawal at any time. But at the same time, making like, you know, 30 year loans and things like that. And yeah, if you but if you do have things that are explicitly done between two parties and they have an understanding of what's going on and there's some kind of thing that that that's backing that, whether it's trust between friends or collateral or like a reliable credit rating, um, absolutely, like absolutely, you're you're representing something very real in that transaction, and the fact that it's like voluntary between the two parties, um, re- like. I think is like extremely important um, and is at, at sort of the base of it all. Like you have, whenever you have a sort of a currency in that form, you have a record that there's some kind of trust between the parties, whether it's backed by a certain asset or expectation or anything like that. Probably a little rambling a little there. Uh, you guys had a statement regarding exchanges too, that here's pretty important. I didn't know if you wanted to touch on that. Um, yeah, Jared, you want to hit that part? Cause you always, um, talking about it. <laughs> um, I, I mean, this is kind of, uh, a little off topic, uh, of what we were just talking about, but with regards to our token and exchanges, just from a legal standpoint, um, we're kind of, we're kind of, at, we're kind of, while we recognize that, that, that our tokens, that customers of our tokens will need more or, or need more capacity to operate the credit protocol, um, and there there is a need for a secondary market. We're we're kind of not specifically pursuing uh, the token being added to exchanges. Yeah, this goes in line with like the fact that um, just legally, um, it, legal isn't just about sort of very strict rules. A lot of it is fact patterns and policy. And so if we say that, you know, we're a product use token, but we're out there soliciting tons of exchanges and, you know, it, it's not, it's not the end of the world for us. And, you know, we would probably prevail in court, but it's not a great look. Um, and in the same way, <laughs> doing like tons of KYC on our customers, while there could be legitimate purposes and it could be useful, you know, if you're saying that you're doing a product use token and essentially selling licenses to um, use software, like no one does KYC uh, when they buy a Microsoft Windows license, right? Even though it's expensive and scarce and potentially transferable. Um, so again, we're just trying to make sure, and I think this is something a lot of companies in the space need to get better at, that we create like, you know, just very strong fact patterns that are consistent with what we say we're doing. Oh yeah, I I I can't get behind that statement more. I mean, it's not like it, exchanges are in in it for profit, and it, because you're following a standard, they're going to add a token if they find value in it. But if you're going through the motions, 
of trying to increase the liquidity of your token as much as possible, it doesn't look good in terms of like if that's not what you're selling in the first place, which from a legal standpoint looks pretty terrible. <laughs> At least that's the way I would see it from my like non-legalese perspective. Yes. Now, I want to be a little careful with that because while we took that position, I think there are some extremely legitimate purposes for the secondary market. And there are a lot of aspects of speculation that are not investment. And in fact, those two things are very often um, uncorrelated and specifically differentiated. So like for one easy example of a use on the secondary market is I have groups approaching me now asking, you know, can I give them ideas or projects they could build on top of the credit protocol? And the answer is absolutely yes. And I'm willing to like, you know, do some consulting with them and stuff like that. But, you know, it's going to be very hard for them to access tokens um, given, you know, how popular the sale is likely to be and how much of it is going to the whitelist. And to, or in order to sort of let their apps run on it, they absolutely would need to purchase on the secondary market. Mm-hmm. And those early buyers, you know, make a profit for correctly evaluating that, you know, this would be an economically valuable activity. And there's a lot of areas I I can give, if you want, I can give analogies all day long, but there are a lot of areas in the market where that kind of foresight and market analysis is rewarded without the thing being a security. Yeah, I can, I can Hmm. agree with that. Yeah. Not to mention the the fact that, uh, basically it looks like, uh, our sale will be sold out and people are asking how to get their hands on these tokens uh, in the future, and there and there is going to be this kind of demand to access the credit protocol. Yeah, I think um, so, I think exchanges actually have an interesting role to play in this. But uh, you guys go. I was going to say, tell me more about this this friend in debt thing because it looks interesting. <laughs> I was reading about it, and you know, you keep track if your friend owes you money or if you owe your friend money. But I'm particularly interested in the part where you could sell that debt. Is that like how does that work is that a thing yeah um, it's this was um not sure what to say there hold on let me break it down in the context of this conversation okay cello and i eat thai lunch a lot so if we're Mm -hmm. betting on the fact that we're gonna eat thai lunch again but then we never do and then either cello never receives his 20 dollar lar payment from me or 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 me from him then I can then sell that debt to another friend and say, <laughs> hey, hey, Cello owes you know me what? lunch and yeah. he didn't pay up. So I'm going to sell we actually, debt. We actually had demand for that feature um, from our users uh, being especially our team as we were using it. And um, like – Especially Jared likes to create weird, complex, like financial <laughs> situations that are like completely unproductive. It's sort of like his thing. He likes random games. So I, I, th- I think that, yeah, that's actually a feature that one of the cool things about the protocol is like you can like it would not be a particularly hard thing to build that on to the program while keeping the same underlying tracking. And we really want to emphasize like that we're we really are do like doing the protocol because there just wasn't anything like that out there. And like, once you have that as like a base layer, you can assume you can literally just start thinking this stuff up and either, you know, have your developer do it fairly easily. Or if you're a developer, put it in, but like, there's a lot of wacky shit you can do. So do you have like, right. a, like it, a- it, it is, it is a bit difficult to write in like a metal bat into, into the, a smart contract, but we're, mm-hmm. we're working on that technology. 
the metal bat. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just I'm curious if there's some one of your friends that's like really really trying to invest into the Jared coming through fund and it's really going to pay off later on down the line. <laughs> this is all like a really good direction that requires like further research. <laughs> Well, uh, what else um, do y'all have going on that y'all, y'all want to kind of talk about it, that we haven't haven't been able to kind of get to yet? A few companies have a working product at the time of their token sale, and you guys have that. So, I mean, uh, kind of. Oh, you know what? You know what I do? Yeah, you want you want to let me talk about that more generally for the community at large, just because I think that's more interesting than us talking about like you know I did some Solidity Dev and Luke wrote a lot of front end code. Um, <laughs> I think. From a legal perspective, if you want to be a product use token, it's extremely helpful to have product or something that's like product that's like very close to them being able to audit and deploy on the mainnet. Amen. Um, and yeah, exactly. And so this is why I remember a second ago I said like I thought the SEC decision was one of the best things to happen for the community. The specific reason is that they're literally, if they enforce that, they're strongly disincentivizing these vaporware ICOs. Um, like they, they're putting them at massive legal risk and they're strongly incentivizing, you know, decent dev teams to go out and make cool stuff and then make a lot of money for it. And from my point of view, I think there's like probably one to $10 trillion of value that still just needs to be created in this space. Like literally none of us in our lifetimes can be productive enough to even capture a fraction of it. Um, and so it's like pretty awesome and necessary that like now there's this path to disincentivize scam ICOs, incentivize developers to like really get like get on that. And also really critically, a lot of top development uh, talent right now is wasted on things like optimizing ad technology, which is basically everybody at Google and Facebook. Um, and also like making another version of a way to do something with the computers we have in our pockets. And the more that that talent, like just for financial reasons, gets diverted to making cool things in the blockchain that kind of have to happen, like that, it just can't happen fast enough. Makes sense. Um, I'm trying to, yeah, I feel like there was, oh, (laughs) yeah, go for it. Why don't you talk about, uh, Tim, why don't you talk about kind of how, how we're doing something sort of different with, with Ethereum that people for the most part have completely ignored yeah i mean i I mentioned that earlier when we were talking about like databases and stuff but basically people just aren't using ethereum as like this like public database with certain like trust properties that we can just use for the gas and what we're really like trying to do right now is there's like a fair amount of really cool things you can do both I mean, I think everyone knows a lot about the stuff that could be done in the credit space, even if you look at the use cases in our white paper. But one of the next things we're going to do is going to take advantage of the fact that people talk about digital assets a lot and they talk about credit a lot. But I don't think people fully realize how much our lives are going to change once you like can start actually recording things on the blockchain. And I think that one thing that has to change for that to start happening is people have to get a little bit less autistic and stop worrying so much about purity and like, you know, is everything handled in code and deal with the fact that there will be 
third parties writing stuff to the blockchain that you can then over time sort of trust or not trust. Now, in terms of stuff that we want to push and how we're using Ethereum differently, I can sum up our kind of our main thesis for products pretty simply, which is that if you can find something you want to do that involves low frequency, high value database rights, like for example, you know, just in our context for this one, recording some like that some person has a consumer debt and then subsequently recording the repayments, right? Mm. If you can do something that has low frequency, high value rights, even if they're high cost, like they cost 20 cents or a dollar or something, and that has high frequency reads that are very valuable, you can do that in Ethereum today. And we have a couple things that we're advising on right now and that we're going to announce soon once they're in like, a, you know, both just to protect the intellectual property and also to get them a little bit more like fleshed out. Um, some things both in medical and social that use that exact property and are going to be things that like with no further improvements to Ethereum scalability um, will massively change the way people operate in both of those markets. So that, that's what I would say for our main like thesis. Okay, cool. And then the, the, the credit protocol token sale, it's going to commence on the first. I wanted to let you know that this episode is going to go out a couple of days after that, but we will let our audience know on that day as soon as it goes live. So yeah, if your be- audience doesn't already know about the credit protocol, the, uh, the sale, the, the, there's a whitelist only sale between October 1st and um, October 8th. I think those dates are correct, right? And the yeah. public sale, if there's any leftover tokens, the public sale will start on October 8th at, at um, 4 p.m. UTC time. Mm. Okay, that'll work. And, so, and if not, like, you know, they, they are, they will be available on the secondary market. And I think that's a very legitimate use of it. Very cool. Definitely. So as I'll just add on, like, it just seems to me that crypto is an obvious advancement in the a lot of people like to say, like, you don't reinvent the wheel. And I say that that saying is complete bullshit. Because mm. if we hadn't reinvented the wheel, then we'd still be rolling around on fucking rocks. And that's not <laughs> happening, obviously. You know, so yeah. obviously cash and reinventing cash and reinventing credit, which obviously credit is a great invention of humanity, frees up capital and does all sorts of amazing things obviously because everyone in the world is worried about their credit score so you know a reinvention of the wheel and kudos to you guys for it seems like you're pulling it off quite well so we got one last question for the both of you go for it i hope you're ready it's tough <laughs> uh-oh in 10 words or less <laughs> can you describe blockchain jared go Describe blockchain. It's tagging them in. Or less. <laughs> mm. Go, brother. Something along the lines of um, trustless, uh, forever storage. <laughs> Let's pass it off to Tim. <laughs> you got three. <laughs> you got something with three. Forever storage. Yeah. Okay. Fucking amazing database, money, 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 money. <laughs> okay, fucking amazing database, money, money, money. It's gonna look five awesome. monies and then five monies and then get paid. <laughs> <laughs> All right. 
Wait, I fucking like amazing it. database. Money, 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 money. Get paid. <laughs> that, Gotta hit that ten mark. I feel like you a rapper with that's that. how Jamie Foxx would have answered we, it. We've been watching a lot. We've been watching a lot of the Paragon uh, ad videos involving the <laughs> yeah. game. So <laughs> this is changed, this has massively like changed our understanding of the blockchain. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, a, I'm just gonna like, go back to the U.S. and just get really high all the time and like give people my thoughts on blockchain. <laughs> You could probably make a strong living off that. You can you can charge for so, that. It's <laughs> sort right. of depressing. Like it's true. Yeah, back in Austin, right. look me up. <laughs> Thanks awesome, for uh, stopping by, and um, good to have you. Yeah. yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, good. Yeah, to it was be a on. great time, guys. Um, I'll stay, let's stay in touch and just see like where everything goes. And if anyone's ever in the same place, I'm like always down to hang out. For sure. Absolutely. Right. Thanks, guys. All right. So my relatives are texting me thinking that my statuses today were serious and that I want to start a militia. Fuck, man. People are weird. Gotta stop posting stuff on, on Facebook, man. Facebook has turned Dude. into the, the like the opiate of the masses. It's garbage. There's nothing good that happens on Facebook. Yep. Jokes happen. And I made the Twitter, one. bro. Maybe. I made sure, maybe. I don't know. That's it's it's piled under the dog shit. I'd never see it. Jesus, man. My relative was like, are you okay? You really want to start a militia? I was like, what the fuck? Are you serious? Let's, uh, let's get the show on the road. I don't want to butt up against the other one and have to rush to get over there. Aren't huh? you glad the Las Vegas shooter wasn't black, though? Bullet dodged. No, because people forget black shooters all the time. Can you name the last black shooter? Either of you? The UT? UT sniper? UT sniper? Yeah, he was in the bell tower, sniping people in the face. He was a black no. guy. That was the DC sniper before that, right? UT sniper black guy. What was his name? <laughs> That's one hell of a Google search. Charles Whitman. Got it. Jesus.
UT sniper black guy. That's this is getting recorded, by the way. So that's good. AKA good the fodder. Texas Tower sniper. <laughs> I can't wait to unveil my 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 ending business idea, which is a uh, feed of a person's Google history search on their gravestone, powered oh, with yeah. solar panels, and how many times they deleted their history. So it's their most recent history with a number up top of how many times they deleted their history. So you can see well, like I browse, how I browse incognito twenty four seven now. That's why. Why? Well, because I don't want a history. Just hate convenience. Huh? Kind of fucking spy. <laughs> just use <laughs> DuckDuckGo. Just, you... just use DuckDuckGo. Yeah, I could use that too. I don't keep anything. What's DuckDuckGo? So like incognito search engine that, that doesn't a, yeah. doesn't store your information. Dimitri, are you offended that I googled UT sniper black? I didn't even say black guy. I just UT sniper black. Did sniper black would be a good rap name? But <laughs> or are you more offended that I found the name of the guy with that search pretty easily and quickly? They're probably would have been just as quick and easy if you didn't put black. Easily, what did you say, Corey? Probably would have found it just as easy even if you didn't put black. <laughs> I know that's what I'm saying. Are you sniper? That you found his name. I have a feeling that you think that um, I'm an easily offended person. I'm not really easily offended. Does that offend you that he feels that way? Yeah. Are you offended that I'm not offended that you thought I would be offended? I think I think you're correct that it would be a good rap name, UT Sniper Black and Little Uzi Vert on the same track. <laughs> Let's do it. Little Uzi Vert and Sniper Black. All right, show on the road. Okay, we can't just get the show on the road. We need to think about some things to talk about so we don't get off topic. Well, this is a midweek, so you know the block Mason was 36 minutes. doesn't have to be an hour long. We can just make it however long we want. Yeah, we can do what we want. We can do what we want. I would like to talk about Goldman Sachs and what the implications are. Okay. Do you guys Are you guys aware of what's going on the last couple of days? No. Yes. The CEO um, is just open. This. That quick? Yes. Goldman Sachs Black. Uh, the All CEO right. um, is open to Bitcoin, which is good. All right. In 10.